Alright guys, this is the second half of episode 30 that dropped on Saturday. This part covers all the Can-Am League news and talks about the Can-Am League Championship game. This does not include the news that dropped about Ottawa regarding uh, ownership. That's going to be covered in the episode that's going to be released this upcoming Saturday. So Saturday the 28th. One other important little note to add to this piece. Not only was this recorded first, so technically this is part two of part one. Confusing, I explained it all the preview of the last episode. In any case, we give the date for voting in here. That date's going to get suspended a week, so instead of the voting ending on the 27th, it's actually going to end on the 4th of October. So voting for all the awards and stuff that's going to come up a little bit later on the episode, that's been extended a week. With that being said, enjoy the second half of episode 30. Championship season is still upon us, and we already have three champions crowned. Join us as we talk about the final league and break down everything that's happened in the past week of independent league baseball here on the Indie Ball Report Podcast. Alrighty, we are back again. Episode number 30, Triple X episode, the scandalous episode, if you would, through the Roman numeral crowning. It's really not that scandalous today. It's just a jam-packed episode. We got the Can-Am League to talk about. We got the Atlantic League to talk about. We got the Frontier and American Association to talk about. And a whole bunch of stuff in between. So let's just dive right into it. We will start by talking about the Canadian American Association. Primarily, though, we are going to talk about the, some of the news that's happened in the past week before we jump into actually breaking down the championship series. Just quickly covering the Ottawa situation. Nothing really new there. Nope. Uh, we're just kind of tracking down on that timeline. We only got about another week before we start hitting Miles' uh, Wolves' deadline. Self-imposed deadline, yeah. Yeah, so it's going to, well, actually, supposedly, if I remember correctly, it was the two to three weeks because the league needs to know, are the champions going to be there in 2020 or right, not? Yeah. Which is going to make Knowing that's the reason why that deadline is going to make the next story a lot more interesting. But yeah, if we're still in Ottawa here. You got two to three weeks here to figure it all out. We are down to one to two weeks to figure it all out. Still, reportedly, two buyers extremely interested. We have a motion in the city council to what will almost certainly pass. I believe that'll be Wednesday of next week, the twenty fifth. All in all, it's a very interesting situation going on in Ottawa. Yeah, it's a very uh, interesting situation and a difficult one uh, for Champions fans to kind of watch how everything will unfold here. I think as you look through this situation as a whole, it's not going to be good for the Champions. The outcome will not end up in a positive way. Even if Wolf is successful in selling the team, uh, the owner is going to have to take on a lot of debt. So the team will originally open with a lot of debt going on, so I don't know how that's going to work out. And then secondly, of course, uh, once the league kind of figures everything out, they'll have to see whether they want to continue with the champions or, you know, move on to other opportunities, as we'll talk about coming up next. But the other thing that I think we really got to take into account here is, will the Ottawa uh, Council, City Council, decide... To just say, well, we're moving on with the property one way or the other. So, so bad, too sad for the champions. Exactly. I think the, this all goes back down to not having a lease in place. I know this is kind of insider ball and whatnot, 
but just generally speaking, not having the lease in place doesn't really give you stability as an ownership group. And then knowing I'm going to have to go in, negotiate the lease, the 7 to 10 years is fine because stability with that. What you really don't want to see, though, this kind of in-between limbos on there in now, where we don't have a lease, you're going to have to negotiate this stuff, the terms that you're going to be given aren't going to be great again. It just seems like it's not really an ideal situation for a new owner. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think a new owner is going to be, if I was buying the, the champions, I'd be very skeptical of that situation and of what the intention of the city council is there. Um, and like you're saying, to, to try to negotiate a new lease would almost be impossible uh, if you have a city council that's hostile toward having the team there. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a difficult position to kind of be in there because I really do get the sense, like I was saying last week, that they don't want them there, but they are kind of there. It seems like the the proponents of them actually physically being there are a mixture of people that are saying, well, they just got a raw deal and that's why they haven't really gotten the chance at it yet. They haven't had the light rail in. They've never really had ideal conditions. It's a lot of excuse after excuse as to why not, which, fair enough, they're valid enough. But everyone else seems to be like, we want an affiliated team here because that's what the stadium is for, or we want the property for redevelopment purposes being that it's going to be rail by a rail line. It just seems an awful lot to me, like situations we've seen play out, say the North Bears, say Camden, Rayford Sharks, both of those in the Atlantic League, and sure, dozens of times over, where it's more, the property's more valuable, so we're going to do what we can here to work it, so we can get the property. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a political body's idea of how things should be, and then there's what the team and the fans want to happen. And unfortunately, I think that that can sometimes be a, a murky situation if the property is valued for apartments or whatever um, resource that the city wants to use it as, then it's going to be very difficult to sell the um, city council that, oh, we should keep this baseball team here that, like you said, there are reasons that they have struggled financially, but they have, for all intents and purposes, struggled financially. So I think that there's a, a valid component to it, but also, like you're saying, a political, a heavily political component as well. Yeah, I kind of think the struggles go back to, again, the light rail just not being there. It's very difficult when you don't have commuter rail to not get, to get that foot traffic, especially when you're on the side of like a highway, like they kind of are. You're not going to get walk-up traffic, especially without like a ballpark village or a lot of attraction that's going to direct the, everything there. Sure, there's parking, but how many people have cars and want to deal with the traffic to go to a minor league baseball game on a Wednesday night? More so than that, though, just looking at, like, stadium tours of the place, it seems old. That's a major drawback. Plus, as much as you don't want to believe, optics are very important. You could put 3,000 people in a 10,000-seat stadium, and it still looks very empty. So, when you see, oh, well, this place is kind of dead, it doesn't really make you want to come back again. I almost feel like the way to go about this is, unless you have a major tenant coming in where that 10,000 seating is going to be important, to take out some of the seating, put in more attractions to do in the ballpark, kind of like how Rockland has their whole jungle gym and mini golf course area over there. There's the playground area over in uh, in Yogi Berra. There's teams that have these kinds of attractions, and I think if you put something like that in, you could draw more people in. And just more promotion inside the city. There's multiple little leagues in the city of Ottawa, I see no reason why you can't go to them and go, yo, why don't you take free tickets for the whole team and their parents and come to a game? 
Like give each each player on the team four tickets. Sure, you're eating the last for one or two nights. Yeah. But once they're in there, they're going to be buying concessions. They're going to be buying stuff from the gift shop. And if you have enough, if the play on the field's good enough and your game day production's good enough, they're going to want to come back for more. And that's when you get them. You get them on that second and third time. I agree. And all, a lot of teams that we frequent uh, do that a lot. Uh, the miners do that a lot. The jackals do that a lot. They do camp days and different things. Mm-hmm. And there are ways to make yourself successful or at least keep yourself above water financially in some respects that it doesn't seem Ottawa is using all of their resources. But like you're saying, with no right light rail uh, or commuter line, there's definitely going to be problems in terms of getting people to the stadium. However, I do think that their their numbers haven't been always the bottom. They haven't been terrible. They haven't been the worst every oh, yeah. year. No, their numbers are fine. It's just by comparison, 3,000 Yogi Berra is a much larger crowd than 3,000 is in Ottawa. Right, but you're never going to fill, you know, 10,000 seats for a exactly. uh, it's Can-Am just, League game. Just the, the, the league, you know. Exactly, it's just the quality of talent there, which is not to say it's bad. It's just not the same. Right, it's not going to have the same draw. Exactly, it's not like, if you had, like, the Atlantic League there, then you could reasonably expect to draw 5,000, 6,000, potentially 7,000, depending on who's playing and other factors. It's just in the Can-Am League, you're not getting former Major League talent. Not last, as often, no. Yeah, last year, Matt Latos was the big get. This past year, it really wasn't one. Pedro Siriaco kind of, but he didn't play a single at bat. Yeah, that didn't so, uh, work out right. So that's unfortunate there, but it's just it's a quality of talent thing. You're just not going to get it there. So you kind of got to rely on the guys that were double-A or their triple-A and below. Yeah. That's what you got to rely on. And I'm not even sure if it's so much talent uh, at where they're at in their careers now as much as name recognition. You know? Yeah, no, that's definitely the, that's the, main, that's the main point here. If you could haul out, think of any recently retired baseball player, and it'll, it'll mean a lot more than some young up-and-comer. Right. It's just it's the way it is. People want to know the name, especially in a market like Ottawa that really doesn't have as strong of a baseball culture because it's just... That it's not that existent there. It's no basis for it. Right, uh, and population-wise, there's also reasons to be uh, skeptical of how long uh, a team could work there. So I think you know it's interesting to look at. You know, obviously population density is pretty good, but in terms of would that population, a younger population, want to go to Ottawa Champions games is is a good question, and really something that I think the the, count, the city council is probably thinking about right now and how do you get this uh, people into the stadium and is it worth it, like we're saying, to have the, the stadium, you know, go undergo renovations and things in the future that may happen and still have a, a not a terrible problem with attendance, but maybe a, a problem with attendance to the point where they want to, right, filling exactly. a 10,000 seat stadium and also, of course, um, having problems with getting uh, financially more stable. Exactly. It's just, it's going to be something to watch out for. And I think depending on what happens in the next two weeks, we're going to know an awful lot. But it is funny, though, that you may be, Ottawa is certainly in doubt one way or the other. They're in doubt. We don't know what's happening there. But meanwhile, last night, they're talking about expanding the main. Yep. Which brings us to our next topic of, the Can-Am League is looking to move into Old Orchard Beach Stadium, or well, the ballpark at Old Orchard Beach in Old Orchard Beach, Maine. That's a mouthful to say, but 
it does seem like a nice stadium. It used to be home to a Triple A team for about five years in the 80s, and then it kind of fell into disrepair from there. Various summer leagues and whatnot went in there, but no real permanent tenant. And then in roughly 2010, it was fixed up by a bunch of volunteers, and now it's finally back into playing condition again. Last night at, I believe, Jimmy the Greek's restaurant in Old Orchard Beach, members of the Can-Am League officials, uh, Kevin Wynn and Greg Lockard, the main two, Wynn, as we know, is the executive director, and then Kevin Lockard, who is the team president for both the Miners and the Jackals. Go into detail about later. They were both there and talking about it. And if everything goes according to plan, the team would start playing in 2020. Now, we don't know much else about it. It was just a quick little news blurb. Um, just from a bunch of staff reports. So we're going to be looking into that a little bit deeper here, but it still is a very intriguing possibility. It's an intriguing possibility, and I think a very positive thing for the Can-Am League. At best, you add another team, and you know. but I think really what's going to happen is they're going to wait and see what happens in Ottawa. And if things in Ottawa continue to trend poorly, uh, then they, they can really kind of cushion the blow by saying, okay, we lost the champions, uh, but now we're adding this team in Old Orchard Beach. And as I was talking to you before we came on the air, I just think this location is really good. I think it's a really good location. I think you've got plenty of uh, tourism coming in from places like Kenny Bunkport that are in the area. And of course, Old Orchard Beach itself has a pier and some other attractions on it. So I think it really is uh, a good place for baseball, particularly in the summer and early fall when there's a lot of tourism going on in that section of Maine. So it really does make sense. And also, it's not really northern Maine, it's southern Maine, so it's more accessible. And there's some things that really make it a good choice. Obviously, we'll talk about in a moment. There's things with the stadium that we, that might make things a little yeah, bit more precarious. But Yeah, it's just a very interesting time to be doing this. Because I imagine with Ottawa going on, you mentioned cushioning the blow, but I would say if I'm an official in Old Orchard Beach, I go, you just lost the team. Why do I want to bring you in here? Who knows how long you're going to be here? Especially a team that started playing, I believe, 2014 or 2015 in Ottawa. They've been here for five years and then they're immediately dead. It doesn't really inspire me confidence to put you in that ballpark for, I will assume, five years. It seems like it's not the best timing on it, but I do understand why you want to expand to it. It does seem like a good location, I will say that much, if not a bit odd, just simply because it's not near the other teams. You know, I, I would have thought you would have put a team in, say, upstate New York, like maybe around Albany or so, maybe even further upstate, or put something in one of uh, New Hampshire or Vermont first, just because it seems like on the way up or back to where your two clusters are at the moment, you could get them on a road trip here and with where Old Orchard Beach is about five and a half hours away from both the giant clusters of teams. So it's just kind of an interesting location in my mind. It, it is an interesting location. Uh, the, the reason that it's not as bad as if you put it higher up in Maine is, like I said, it is in southern Maine, so it's not really too much of a tangible difference from some other, uh, northern New England states, uh, New Hampshire, Vermont. It's not too, hmm. too much farther away. Yeah, you're near the population. Right, you're near the population centers there, so it's not, not too bad. Uh, but the, the other thing that I would say is that it, it maybe it's cushioning the blow and, and, but maybe I think it is just, forward thinking by the Can-Am League and saying, you know, look, we made a mistake in Ottawa or we're, you know, something is happening in Ottawa that is a little bit out of our control. And, uh, but this is, if you come into this league, this is why it's healthy. And maybe instead of moving Ottawa there, 
they're simply expanding, uh, and that would be the expansion team. Would that be accurate? Oh, yeah, no, it definitely would be an expansion team. It wouldn't be uh, take the champions move. It would be uh, the champions don't exist, but now the uh, old Orchard Beach Battalion do, or whatever they will name right, the team. Right, whatever they name the team, yeah. And so I think that has a, a very positive impact for the league. And I think if you're an old Orchard Beach porter that wants this to happen, mm-hmm. you look at it in the way of, well, if this doesn't happen, you don't have a team there, right? So I think there are positives on, on that aspect because that will bring in revenue to the community. Obviously, summer league teams and things like that don't really have the same Yeah, no, all, right? it doesn't have that same kind of pull there. Plus, most summer league teams or people that want to see that, they'll just go and watch the Cape Cod League. That's not too far away. So yeah. it does put a team there. However, you do got to wonder how much of a competition is Cape Cod League comparatively because you do see a lot of quality talent in the Cape Cod League. Let's make no mistake about that. You have a lot of high-quality uh, collegiate players oh, no, that, that are that there. Is, that's the best summer league for collegiate talent in, in the country. I'm looking up. I don't know actually how know how far it is. I do know from roughly around this general area in New Jersey is five hours to five and a half hours. Right. I, yeah. yeah, I'm talking to, to Cape Cod, I mean, because I think that's a really yeah. interesting point is yeah. that could be a serious conflict if, if it's only like an hour or two from the, the Cape Cod, but I think it's a yeah, no, I don't think it's that terribly far, but still, it's something to worry about, though, because teams just aren't exclusively in Cape Cod, of course, some of them are in various other parts of uh, that region. Still, it's not exactly something you want to have to worry about when you put a new team in there. Yeah, so it's about three and a half, three hours and 15 minutes, three and a half hours. Okay, so that's far enough away. So that's far enough away where it doesn't, you're not going to have commuter people being like, oh, okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not going to really have a lot of competing with that so i do like the location i think it does make a lot of sense you put it in a tourist area you can attract a lot of people there the ballpark itself is a little concerning it really is showing age i do know like i said earlier it was fixed up in 2010 but even still it's not in the best of shape but you look at the other stadiums that are around the league it fits right in it's not that concerning yeah i agree i mean if we're talking about the Atlantic League, it wouldn't work. Oh, yeah, no, straight up. It has the seating, but it doesn't have the amenities. It just does not have the amenities to work. Uh, it, it can't hold a candle to, from what I've seen, you know, the jewel of the Atlantic and TD Bank Ballpark and uh, Long Island and York that are just really beautiful stadiums, especially York. With the, We're going to get to them. I, I have a yeah. big mea culpa for York. Um, oh, yeah, no, <laughs> we're going to have to talk a lot on about multiple, On multiple fronts, but... Um, but particularly the, the stadium, they just did a yeah. fantastic job redoing it, and so it just wouldn't fit in. But for the Can-Am League, you know, Skylands is very nice. Um, yeah. But you know, places like Yogi Berra are are nice stadiums, and they really have a lot of love those intangible qualities to them. But they're not the most updated amenity laden. It's a stadium that you could tell it's on a college campus, and its primary use is independent league baseball and college events. That's just what it is. Uh, in Canada, you know, excluding whatever is happening with uh, the property at the RGCT Park, the other two are older. The one was built in the 30s, the other one was built not terribly long after. They are what they are. They're products of that kind of general uh, depression era. Right, yeah, they are. And and they were great stadiums when they opened. Yeah, they're even still, they have a historic quality to them. They do. But they don't have that kind of modern flair to them, that modern right. panache that you're going to see in, like, a rock one. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, and I think that's the thing. 
Rockland, of course, is an outlier built to be an Atlantic League stadium. May Ex- become an Atlantic League stadium. It'll we'll happen eventually. It won't happen next year. But I, I gotta say, 2021 makes a lot of sense for Rockland. If you add Gastona, they both go in the same time, nice and even all the way through. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense, yep. And with, you know, High Point Stadium also being really nice, uh, from what I've seen of that. Yep, and Sugarland too is Sugar also extremely nice. extremely nice. So, I mean, I just think that, you know, obviously Rockland being kind of the subtext here that we'll kind of go into, but, uh, at a later point, but I think that definitely, if you do put Old Orchard Beach in, like you're saying, it fits in terms of the ballpark quality. I think it fits because it is still in the Northeast Corridor. Oh, yeah, no, it has to remain in that area. I don't see them going much further out there than, say, like, O.S. Virginia or kind of a Western PA, but not even real Western PA. Right, It'd be like more middle of the state than really Western PA. Yeah, I wouldn't see them going terribly far. Uh, that just makes no sense to... I, I, right, I could see, you know, like, I think Marshall built a new... Yeah, they're building a new one that's coming up soon, I I think 2021, 2022 for them. Yeah, so I could see the the Can-Am League reaching out and seeing if they could get something there. Obviously, it's a little bit farther away from their pockets there, but... Yeah, but also a lot more difficult to try and convince a D1 school to be like, hey, can we use your thing? Right. As opposed to convincing Moncarcy, which is, I believe, Division 3. I believe Division 3, yeah. It's 3 or 2, I can't recall. Either way, it's a lot easier to be like, hey, can we use your thing? Yeah, because, uh, again, hey, can we pay rent to you or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> and so, yes, they're going to say yes. But I think that, overall, the Old Orchard Beach seems to be, out of all the, the ones we've talked about, um, seems to be the one that makes the most sense to me. Yeah, it makes a lot. Logistically. Yep. And now we do know one of the two, one of the three locations, actually, that when it told me about back in June that they were looking at, it's this one. I kind of want to speculate as to what the other two are. Because I feel like... You know they have to be vacant at the moment. So Nashua, New Hampshire seems like one. They have history there. There's a ballpark there. It seats, I believe, around 6,000, maybe a little less. I think it makes sense to go there. There's a couple of stadiums in Connecticut that make sense. I assume it's got to be all along that general region. And then I I got to think like PEI yeah, or Newfoundland. Yep. I mean, and maybe, maybe it's in these Canadian provinces. Uh, there's I, one that we know is in Canada, and there's two that we know are in the U.S. Right, so the the one that we know that's in Canada, it has to be, like you're saying, it's got to be on the coast almost. Yeah. Like, it would make sense a lot. I just don't, the coast. like, it can't be in, uh, like, in uh, Ontario. I don't think that would work. I don't think so either. Too much. It's got to be either Quebec or it's got to be on the coast. I agree. Uh, I agree with that, and I think, in terms of the United States, it should be Northeast Corridor. I mean, uh, you know, it makes sense. It, it, would, be, it would make sense. Uh, were they kicking tires around at Pawtucket at one point? Is that supposedly? Supposedly, supposedly but I mean, Pawtucket was never going to go with them. Like that just made no sense. It's really been the Atlantic League leading the charge as far as the independent front is yeah. concerned. There, tilting at windmills a little bit for the Can-Am League. Yeah. There, interesting enough though with Gaston, we're kind of getting off topic and we'll kind of move on in one second here, but interesting enough, when Gastona came around, a location that you could have thought, oh, well, maybe, because it's, well, far, and it's close enough to make sense, and also a nice ballpark. They weren't the other team in there, besides, or other league in there besides the Atlantic League. It was the uh, United Shore League out in Michigan, where everything's in one ballpark in Michigan. 
That's crazy, you know? I don't know. It's like, I didn't get that one. I was like, that makes very little sense. How Unless you're going to put, like, four teams in that ballpark, like you're doing in Michigan, and then just have them both meet and then play at whoever's the better record stadium. Oh, I don't like that at all. That would have been a very interesting thing to do. That makes my skin crawl a little bit, though, you know? Yeah. Which would be funny, though, is if the Can-Am League said, or we can't possibly get guests on. We're not going to beat up the Atlantic League for them. And the fact that there's even more competition for it, let's just admit defeat on that front. We need to know where it is. Because they got to be realistic about it. Right. You can't course. You can't just fight battles you're going to lose. Yeah. And they said, but Wilmington, North Carolina is on the table. And if they went down to Wilmington and got that one, that would be a very interesting thing. That would be very interesting. Now, granted, there is a Coastal Plain League team in there, but they're summer collegiate. You could kick them out. That's not that much of a concern too much. Right. Especially because they've been talking for a while about that. I think Old Orchard Beach and Wilmington could be your two spots. That would be an interesting thing, especially because it sets you up later on. Now, granted, everything is relying on what Ottawa does. If Ottawa goes down... Odds are Old Orchard Beach is going to be spooked off by it. Probably. Like a deer in the woods. They're going to be running right away, at least for now. For now. They may come back in a little bit when things kind of staple down, everything gets good again. Yeah. But it would be interesting if everything stays stable, Ottawa remains good, you find a buyer and everything's all well and good there for at least the foreseeable future. You put Old Orchard Beach and you move a team right down low to Wilmington. You go back to an 18 league, which is where you want to be. And you can set yourself up to continue to move south. And you can kind of build yourself a nice little southern division. And you kind of build off of that. Now that may be a bit thinking big picture here. Thinking long term down the road. But Wilmington, North Carolina could be a nice little building block there. Because it's close enough to enough people and close enough to enough tourists and local folk. You can draw. You can draw there, no doubt. And I think that would be a really, really good decision (laughs) to put a team in Wilmington. That would be probably even better. I would rather than put the team in Wilmington than probably Old Orchard Beach because population center is bigger, and obviously you probably need both, right? I mean, for an yeah. expansion logistically, but I would, I think Wilmington would really be a good move. Uh, but, you know, all of this obviously is speculation, but I really hope that something does happen because we these leagues are so important to kind of the backbone of what is baseball in America, yeah. and without them... You know, I think it, it we're we're less of a uh, a nation in terms of our sports without them, and I think it's yeah. uh, you know it's important to kind of keep these things going and to have uh, the Can Am League in a little bit of a precarious situation. Obviously, we don't need to make a big deal about yeah, it. Yeah, no, the sky's been falling on that forever. Yeah, the sky's falling. You now, know, another new thing for the league that the sky's falling is the Frontier League. Right, this and guy is putting home. out those fires right now. Going, they're not going anywhere. Just River City's going somewhere. Don't worry about this. It's going to be fine. Yeah, which we'll talk about all of them much later on. But yeah, and, and so just to to conclude, I think it's really important to have stability in these leagues. And the Can-Am League has been, you know, kind of up and down lately. You know, for the most part, they're they seem to be stable. But you know, overall, I think that um, it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. Right. So I think now that we're 27 minutes into the show, we're going to go ahead and actually start talking baseball now. There you go. Because I'm sure you all have heard enough about the -the off-the-field stuff, which is going to go away for a little bit here in the show as we break down the Garden State Classic, which came to a conclusion just hours after episode 29 was up, rendering a decent chunk of it obsolete. (laughs) So naturally, that's always fun to see. But for those that are unaware, the New Jersey Jackals captured 
their first Can-Am League championship, their fourth overall championship, with a commanding 8-7 victory over the Sussex County Myers in Game 4. It was, uh, it was a fun series. The Game 4 was in particular fun. It had a little bit of everything there. Interesting stat, though. Although the Jackals won in four games, they were outscored 21-16. to That's crazy. I think that shows how odd of a series it was, right? Like, yeah. And how it really swung one way or the other. It was like, uh, they didn't just win, right? They just, if the team was going to win, they were going to get blown out for the most part. <laughs> well, not even really, because most of the games here, three of them were all within two runs. Each yeah, other. That's true. Only one was the blowout, and that's what kind of throws this off the rails there, the 12-3 to blowout on the uh, last Jackal home game of the year where all of about 100 people were there. Don't tell me it was 501 like that attendance at Faker says, because it wasn't, and I was there. I can tell you, there was not a hundred, there was maybe a hundred and fifty there, and that's being generous. But if you take that game out, all of a sudden now it becomes a Jackals outscoring them 13 to 9. And that makes it a lot that more true. That makes it a lot more true to what actually happened in the series. And yeah, I mean, it was a very interesting series, a very good series. Uh, obviously, one of those outcomes that the, that you that you're happy for, right? Because you've seen exactly. these ja- the jackals they get so close to the mountaintop every time, and then they stumble back down, and they finally now reach the pinnacle. Exactly, like my tweet it said, the bridesmaids finally getting married. They finally won one. Plus, you just saw the way this team was on the like in between at bats, and whenever someone coming and score after a home run, half the team would be out of the dugout. They'd just be exciting, and you could just tell it's a very close knit group of guys the kind of team that wins a championship, despite, by all measures, just they shouldn't have won. They're two games above 500, not particularly a great record for a large stretch of the season. They just weren't anything of note, really. And for basically the whole way through, the Miners just dominated. They never faltered at all. They were wire-to-wire champions. First time we've ever seen that in this league. And really, their slump was just playing average. That's the amazing thing here. And then they go out, they get blown out in one game against Rockland, and every other game, they come out like gangbangers. They just look totally like they're overmatching Rockland. And whenever Rockland looks to crawling back, something smashes them back in. So you come into this series going, oh, well, the Jackals, they struggled to get through three rivers. It took them extra innings in game five. It's really been feast or famine for them to this point. They'll probably steal one at home, maybe they take two and it goes to five, but it's probably done in four. Sussex is a repeat champion, which is kind of a given. Then after game one, you see, okay, took extras and they went on a wild pitch, but when everything happens like that, you kind of think, oh, well, you know, Sussex beat themselves today. That's just kind of what happened. Then Sussex goes out and blows their doors right off. 12 to three the following day, and now we're thinking, it's done. This is about all she wrote. And then game three... Myers gets shut out. Then game four, you're looking like it's going to be a pitcher's duel for the first two innings. You're like, okay, well, we kind of thought this may happen. And then the offense explodes on one end. Then the offense explodes on the other end. And then we're back into a pitcher's duel for like the last four innings. It was just a very exciting series the whole way through because you never knew what you are going to get, but you got some of everything. Yeah, a very exciting series the whole way through. And really, I think the... The word that comes to mind when we're talking about this year's Jackals team is grit. This is a team with a lot of grit. Uh, it's got a lot of 
veteran guys who knew how to win games, uh, Conrad Gregor, other guys that were really kind of pushing things in that right direction. So you've got some, some guys in there that knew how to play ball, knew how to win games, and they really kind of willed themselves to victory in a couple of these games, like you're saying. And it, it's just a special team. One of those teams where, like, you know, there's no, no reason that they should win statistically. You can't find it. Yeah, no, like a team of destiny almost. Yeah. You know, like you saw, like particularly with Nelson Ward, there was a couple times he really put his athleticism on display where he made just like a spider monkey catch in game three where he just went leaping up and just grabbed something out of the air that should have rightfully been at least a base hit, if not a double. And that just saved about two runs by doing that. And then towards the end of the game, he caught a really hard hit line drive and doubled it off to end that game. It was game three was the Nelson Ward experience, although he just kind of shattered the mold. Like I'm, I know I'm focusing solely on the one guy here, but but Ward coming in, I was just like, ah, he's, he's whatever. You know, he's kind of okay. And then he goes and he bats about 450. And he just shows, okay, this is my time. And you need guys like that. You need the guy that just was kind of sleeping through the whole regular season. He kind of was pedestrian for the most part and then just flips the switch. When the next season starts, okay, time to go. Absolutely. And he's one of those X-Factor kind of guys where... You need those, if you're going to have that magical run, if you're going to be that team of destiny, you have to have that player of destiny almost, right? You've got to have that guy who's always going to take the mantle and run with it. And like you're saying, the athleticism that was on display there, some of those catches, like, <laughs> just ridiculous. And he was just one of those guys who was the X Factor. The, yeah. Just the, the game changer who made plays, who changed the, the series. If nothing else, then with his athleticism and the energy that it gave his teammates. Oh yeah, no, like you saw, like everyone's talking about Breland Almondova and his two catches, which were terrific catches. He's a terrific fielder, and that was on display in both series. He made diving and sliding catches, running starts where he got a late break on it, but caught back up to it catches, which were terrific. But Nelson Ward was fielding his position beautifully too, and that gets overshadowed a lot. I mean, it really, you look across the board. Everybody was doing something. Everybody was contributing in some way, shape, or form. You had guys like Stock and Harris that were chipping in. You had guys that, like, were Ward, they just jumped up and they did their job. But then you had other guys that just went cold, like Conrad Gregor. Like, we'll talk about the polls they set up in just a minute, but by and large, he did nothing. And someone did actually vote him for postseason MVP, and I was just kind of like, Conrad, really? Really? That's the guy you wrote in, Conrad Greger? I agree. And I think Conrad did not have a good postseason, like you're saying. He struggled greatly. He struggled greatly. But I think he did give something intangibly that was important, was that veteran presence. Yeah, no, him being there was important. Was he important. was fielding well enough. Did a good just, job fielding. But like you're saying, struggled mightily yeah, offensively. Yeah, from a, just a sheer production standpoint. Outside, and I understand why they voted for him, because... His three-run shot, which is about the only thing he did in this particular series, and he hasn't done much on a whole for the whole postseason. But that three-run shot was what gave them the lead and ultimately what got them the win. Right. Just when you're looking for, this is the award for the postseason, the two guys that really, in my mind, are the only guys you could really vote for were Nelson Ward, because he was one of the consistent, he's always hitting, he's always fielding, he's doing everything he can, guys. And then Reese Carlius, who was just utter dominant for essentially the whole length. His only bad, I'm using bad very lightly, only bad appearance 
was that game four. But at that point, he had throw, thrown something in the neighborhood of like 13 pitches or 13 innings in 10 days. Yeah. Which, he, as a reliever, you know, that's a that's an awful lot. Yeah, he was fantastic in relief and really one of one of those uh, important pieces that led to the Jackals having that run. I mean, there's no way that they win if they can't slam the door on the Miners. If he can't come yeah. in and slam the door on the Miners, forget it. Exactly. He just came in time and time again. Both series, if you look at it, he went to your starter for six or seven. Harley comes in, shuts the door. Yep. And it was just consistent there. I mean, you, I'd also see Dylan Brammer as a guy that you could pull up because he threw tremendously, especially in that last game. Three innings out of a closer is a gutsy performance there. It is. And, I mean, even on the broadcast, the Myers guys are saying, Brooks Carey is going to win this game today or he's going to lose tomorrow. He's, there's no tomorrow as far as he's concerned, which I completely agree with. Like, you're up 2-1, to one, sure. But you know if you lose that game, the momentum has now shifted. And already you've kind of burned everything you have. You know Carlis is already at the end of the line. So you, one way or the other, he pitches two innings, he pitches three innings. It doesn't really matter. He's not going tomorrow. Brammer, if he throws one inning or he throws two innings, already he's throwing a lot of innings. So what difference is it going to make you tack on another one? Yeah. I, I admire the go-for strategy. Whenever I see it, regardless of sport or whatever it is, throwing everything in the middle of the table and saying, we're going to go for it now, you got to respect that. Now, if it doesn't work out, you can criticize them. Sure. But you respect that. I agree. I respect that, and you got to go for it there. You're up 2-1 against a team you shouldn't be up 2-1, probably. Yep. Uh, a team that was climbing back into the game, for the most part, before he put those guys in. You've got If you've got your shot at the, the king, right, you're taking your swing yep. at the, the team that has been the best in the league and the defending champs, you can't miss. Exactly. That, and also you know one thing that's a hallmark of every Bobby Jones team is after a loss, they always swing back hard. Yep. They never really lose games in a row. Sure, they occasionally lose two in a row. Three in a row just doesn't happen. Right. And in the postseason, two in a row doesn't even happen. Yeah. I mean, you saw after a just kind of a miss, missed opportunity in game one, really, that you had a lead, then you lost the lead, then you got it back to a tie, and then... You loaded, or you got two guys on, and then a wild pitch scores the winning run. It was just a disaster of a 10th inning as far as their end's concerned. They come back out and they just blow their brains out. Oh, yeah. The next game beat them by nine, which really, that's not even a fair comparison. It was 12 to 1 going to that ninth inning. Right. I mean, the last two runs loved by Thompson were just kind of meaningless runs. Yeah, so in, in essence, they beat them by 11 runs. Yeah. Exactly, as far as everything's concerned there. And then you come back out the next time, the Jackals answer right back. They hold you to no runs. I mean, through the first six innings, they held you to two hits and about, I want to say, four base runners. You know you're probably not going to get that lucky again where you're going to shut them out or you're going to hold them below, like, 13 base runners for the whole game. So you have your shot now. They get a win here. You're not going to get another chance. So I you respect Terry for going for that. 100%. you got to go for it there. You're gonna probably lose the next day, like you're saying. Either way, so you gotta. Kerry's gotta gotta think to himself. We never have slammed the door. We've never won this, and now we're gonna do it right now, right here, right now. Exactly. Now it's gotta be the time to do that. And uh, it worked out. So hey, I mean, you know, exactly. they're it works. It works. Yeah. Uh, for Sussex, though, I think we kind of should focus on them just a little bit here. Yeah. Really, like they didn't play bad. That's the thing no, about it. That they lost. But they. It's one of those things where it's like, you tried your best, but you just didn't succeed. 
it's a very odd thing to see there. I mean, Brizuela, Reynolds, and Stupinski played terrific. I mean, Stupinski batted 500. That's some... That's ridiculous. I mean... The, Video game numbers. Exactly. I, I mean, it wasn't like it was in a few at-bats. It was like, I want to see he got a hit in 10 of 20 at-bats, 11 of 22, something along those lines. And he was drawing walks and whatnot. No, he wasn't driving runs in. He wasn't scoring runs, but he was getting on base. Yeah. Uh, not scoring runs thing. That just goes back to them in total. I mean, they left 34 guys on base in four games. And that's why they lost the series. Right there. Exactly. You gotta drive in the runs. It comes down to that. The game, first game wasn't that bad. You left five on. That's whatever. Yeah. You left seven on in game two. You'd scored a bunch, so it's kind of whatever. Right. Then from there on out, it got bad. 11 and 13, if I'm right. Yeah. Oh wait, the math doesn't work on that. But they left 13 on base in game, uh, game four. Yeah, I mean, and that's just not gonna work. You just can't, you're not gonna win baseball games leaving 13 guys on base. Simple as that. You're just not going to win. And that's what happened. Exactly. At the end of the day, they just couldn't get the guys across the plate. You can't load the bases multiple times and walk away with nothing. That, that's just what it comes down to. 100%. When you do something like that, not only is it just like deflating as can be to your offense, and it also plays a game with your pitcher because you're thinking, oh, I'm not getting run support, so I got to be perfect. And then whenever they give a base hit or they give a run, it's like, oh, that's what you wrote. Now it's done. Yep, it's all she wrote. It's all done. Comes back to... It allows the pitcher on the mound to be more confident, going, I can walk a guy or two, I can play on the edge here, and no, I'm not going to get burned. Building that confidence when, yeah, I messed up, I let up a base that I shouldn't have, I walked a guy I shouldn't have, but there's only two on, they haven't driven anything all day, why are they going to start now? I should just go right at him. I'll throw him pitches, if he hits it, it's going to be a double play ball, Unless he really connects on it, which they haven't done all day. Right. I think you're correct on that. It allows pitchers to be way more aggressive. They can really pound the strike zone. They can set up pitches. They're more willing to throw more fastballs when they're down. When you know, when they're up, when they're down, they're getting cute, right? I mean, yeah. I think that's what happened a lot is they're getting cute. They're throwing around the zone a little bit. Uh, they're walking some guys. really deflates the offense and the, the pitching when you can't get guys across. They needed to do it. They couldn't do it. And I think that is one of the biggest differences in the series. Because like you're saying, Sussex County did did not play bad. Uh, not at all. And they played well and they continued to do a really good job over there with their talent. And I think Bobby Jones really has the right formula. So I'm not worried about them moving forward. I think they will rebound nicely next season. But obviously for this this past season. It's, it seems, it's, it's a disappointing end. It's a disappointing end, but it seemed like their uh, cross-town, cross-state rivals were very uh, very fortunate, but also very destined. Exactly. They, I think the series could just really be summarized in the team that took advantage of the opportunities they got won. New Jersey was given the opportunities, they took advantage of it. When the Myers had the opportunities, they just didn't convert enough of the time. It only really came together in Game 2. The other three games, obviously, they lost, so it didn't come together. But even then, you just look at, like, the little micro points of the game. They had two guys on. They didn't get enough runs. They had the bases loaded. They only scored one run. They just never were able to finish the job. They had their throat against... They had them against the wall, foot on their throat, and they just couldn't finish it. And when you give someone the opportunity to not... To still fight and still be alive... Don't be surprised when they fight, they stay alive, and then they eventually beat you. 
especially when they wanted as bad as that Jackals team. That Jackals yeah. team wanted it. That was a team that was all in. Yeah, it was just a team that he wasn't going to be beaten. They just weren't going to be beaten. So I think kind of segueing in, into this part here, obviously the Jackal season was about as huge of a success as you can get. Uh, outside of the regular season, everything went exactly as they would have wanted it. You come away with a win. But you consider the minor season, though, a successful season. I do. Uh, I consider it a successful season because they were able to do what they needed to do in terms of in the regular season and in the postseason, they fought as hard as they could to get to where they needed to be. It was successful in terms of not going into this really bad slump after winning because uh, oftentimes you'll see teams they'll win a championship and then they and they're just drained right, out. They're drained. They're done. So they had good energy. Bobby Jones clearly, like I said, has the right formula. And to me, it says this team can be successful moving forward because they have the right head man in place to do that. Oh, yeah, no, as long as, I think I had said this afterwards, but as long as Bobby Jones and Justin Fiorella are there, they're fine. Mm-hmm. They had the they have the people to get in the guys. They have the player procurement guys to move the bright guys in, to develop those players as much as you can in an independent league. But they know how to run a team. And I think that's the biggest thing here. Because you look an awful lot and you compare them to past history. And past history says, oh, well, let's take a look at the Skyhawks being the best comparable there. They've been a more successful team on the field, and clearly more so off the field. So what does that tell you? That the most important thing is the people running the team know what they're doing and know what they need to do in order to be successful. And so so that's just something that's nice to see. Finally, you're going to have stability there. It's just the only concern I have is Bobby Jones makes a lot of sense as a double-A manager. He makes a lot of sense as a double or triple-A manager completely. I mean, he's a really, really good manager. Yeah, he knows how to run a team. He's a player's guy. I have no doubt in my mind he can get the development aspect under control easily. He's a player's guy. He's a high-energy guy. He's a never-say-quit guy. He knows how to motivate. He just seems like he has all the hallmarks of a guy that is good at his job. And really, I think the question comes down to, does Bobby Jones want to go and do the whole travel around from here to there to here to there again, as opposed to having some stability and just being in one location? I hopefully, I mean, as a, as a person who loves watching the minors, I would say because of the culture they've built there, because of all the good things that they've got going on, I really hope Bobby Jones stays because he is so good as a manager and really fits in well with the, the team and the people that are the fans, and they really love him there. I mean, every time they announce Bobby Jones, it's the biggest ovation of any of the uh, out of any of the players. I mean, it is ridiculous how much he is beloved uh, by the fans in Sussex County. So I, I really hope he stays, but I can understand completely if he goes because he's a fantastic manager. Exactly. You have to look. You look at it through two lenses. One, you look at it like you want the guy to succeed. You want him to keep doing what he wants to do, and he's definitely earned that. I mean, his results, since he's come in, they've only had one bad year, but they've missed the postseason. So the results speak for themselves that he's he's dedicated to his job, he's good at his job, he deserves to keep moving up the chain if that's what he wants. Or from a fan point of view, you go, I really want him to stay because he's yep. really good at his job. How to work the system. I would say probably the best manager in the Can-Am League. Uh, that's, that would be my hot take there. Well, that brings us now to kind of the award voting. 
because I want to touch on this before we talk about the Atlantic League, and this is, like I said, full episode. I mean, we're already almost, like, 50 minutes in. So it's a, it's going to be a long one, which not a problem. We're going. Exactly. Got to go for it there. For this year, manager of the year voting is one of the things, because what we started to do, and I teased it last week, and I teased the week before, but I always am interested in seeing what the fans think of, is this player the best in the league? Is this pitcher the best compared to, you know, how the awards actually shake out? Because you always hear the, oh, X player got snubbed, this guy got screwed, he doesn't deserve it, this guy doesn't instead. So what I kind of did was on the website, we have the Pulse tab. And that kind of disappeared after like episode eight, because there just really wasn't enough response to it. And it just really wasn't worth the extra work. But at least for this part of the year, I brought back like award voting, which is essentially a poll. Where if you go to the website, IndieBallReport.com, you go to the polls tab, or you could just go IndieBallReport.com slash polls. On the first thing you're going to see is a bunch of award voting for League MVP, uh, Pitcher of the Year, Surprise Player of the Year, Manager of the Year, uh, Playoff MVP, and then the All-Star Selection, which is just whomever played the most games at that position for their team. So you'll see, like, at first base, for example, you'll see Siriaco, you'll see Wenrick, you'll see Juan Kelly, you'll see uh, Oberstein from Rockland, so on and so forth. You'll see all those guys there, and then you select the guy, like, oh, I think Juan Kelly's the guy, I want him there because he hit 30 home runs and no one talked about him. <laughs> well, he didn't hit 30, he hit uh, 16, I believe. He, hit, he was just right behind Marte for that league. In any case, we can kind of vote on that. And I just want to really promote that and want you to go to the website, vote for that. Voting's going to be up for about another week. And then we're going to kind of shift over to uh, the Atlantic League. We're going to do the same thing for them, too, just to kind of get a sense of everybody there. So just going to kind of quickly run through the guys on each of the ballots. And that way you kind of know who is going where. Not going to run through the, all the all-star guys because we'll be here for forever if we do mm -hmm. that. I mean, there's enough guys there. You can go and Take a look at your leisure. I do recommend checking out the official Can-Am site that uses Point Streak for the stats or using uh, Baseball Reference. Both of them are pretty accurate for stats, and you can kind of judge off of that. Or you can vote off of Fandom if you really want to, but that's not really in the spirit of the thing. But it's the internet. I'm not going to police you. Yeah, right? You do what you want. Exactly. Do your thing. So for League MVP, there's Alfredo Marte, uh, Conrad Gregor, Juan Kelly, and then Trey Hare. Each of them, very strong seasons, all batters. Right now, I'm not going to say what the percentages are, but Marte is leading, and it's not really close. I don't really see why it would be. The guy batted over 300, had 16, 18 home runs, put up about 80 RBIs. All, every way you slice it, Alfredo Marte was the guy this year. I agree, and I think he'll be the guy in the end. Exactly, he should be. He, he won it for the league officially. He winning it here, and I don't expect anything different. Uh, for Pitcher of the Year, we had uh, Philippe Amont, Brandon Butler, Frank Duncan, Garrett Harris. It's kind of a split between two guys. I think we kind of know those two. Uh, in my mind, it's Amont. The guy had an ERA of 2.65. That's pretty damn good in this league. Yep. Uh, Frank Duncan's really the only other guy that comes close. He had like a 3.05, which, while is good and very impressive, Amon had to deal with Ottawa backing him up. Duncan had Sussex backing him up. Right. You, you want to look at the teams comparatively, and I think you kind of got to factor that in. Amon having better numbers on a worse team 
in a ballpark that's not nearly as friendly for pitchers as Skylands is. Yeah, no, he's it's more impressive. Now, granted, they're both pitcher friendly ballparks. Let's not get that mixed up. But I agree. It's still the point remains. Yeah, I think Amont there is going to be the one that should get it. But I, I think you can make a case. I can make a case in my head for Duncan there, so I can see how that one might be a little bit of a toss. Exactly. I think it's going to be close. I think it's going to really come down to people voting off of fandom or voting off of, yeah, this guy deserves it over this guy. Also on here for a surprise player of the year, we have Andrew Gist, Ryan Burke, Dominic Mazza, and Evan, you're going to get your last name butchered because there's a C next to a K, next to a Y, next to a J. Uh, I want to say it's Ruchka, but I'm not really sure if that's correct. It's definitely Czech, though. We'll go with that. In any case... You're not getting any votes at the moment. Right now is a runaway for one particular guy. I think we can all kind of guess who it is, and I agree with it. Uh, Geis has been a, a gist, I believe it's pronounced. It's like Lisp, but with a G. Yep. He was very good this year. He was a, kind of a surprise coming out of college. He pitched a very little bit, I want say, in the Empire League beforehand, but still he's been a very good pitcher. 86 innings and ERA around three. So again, a solid job by him. Solid job in the postseason as well, even though this is just for regular season voting. But right. In any case, he was very good this year. Uh, yeah, he was very good this year, and I think he's the only one on that on our list there that really makes any that makes sense in terms. Ryan of, Burke does too. He yeah, had, Burke. He does. jumped out of nowhere. Yeah. He had poor stats in the past years, and then this year he goes to batting about three hundred from batting like two forty six. So I mean, the jump was a bit surprising. Right, the jump is surprising, and he's good. Um, yep. But I, I do think that uh, Gis kind of takes it away there yep. in the end. For manager of the year, we had TJ Stanton, who won it in real life. Not just in our polls here, who is, he's also winning at the moment. Although there is a vote for Bobby Jones and Brooks Carey, too, at the moment, which uh, i got to disagree with Bobby Jones being there. He continued to do what was expected, which is to continue to win. Last year, he definitely deserved it. This year, eh, not really going to give it to him. Brooks Carey, I kind of see it because win the whole thing. But if you're putting the focus primarily on the regular season... Not so much. Yeah, you were 500. And then uh, Kevin Baez, who came in from uh, Long Island of the Atlantic League to fill in for Jamie Keith. He's also there, but he's just more or less, you need four guys before you can put the right-in slot in. So <laughs> he's just kind of there. Kevin really doesn't... Your team was under 500 and knocked down the first round. You're just better than Ottawa or Quebec, which this year is not saying terribly much. Uh, in my mind, it's got to be TJ Stan. He takes his team. Uh, another, I want to say about 10 wins he added to their record this year. Jumped them up to really fight with Sussex, for, especially towards the end there, only a couple games back. Yeah. If they would have had as slow of a start out of the gate, they would have had this easy. So I I go about I gotta give it to Stan on that one. Yeah, I gotta give it to Stan too. I, I think he would be the guy there. Obviously, like you're saying, the the argument for Bobby Jones is they were the best team in the Can Am League, but the problem is he won it last year. That's expected. Exactly. So it, it's a kind of an unfair thing because it's like exactly you gotta discount because he's already right because he's already been successful. So he, it's he's not adding anything that he, he was supposed exactly. he he supposed to continue to raise the bar. Yeah, and I mean he got a couple fewer wins this year. Yeah, if he would have won like say I don't know sixty eight wins in I think ninety four games, then I would have said okay, well he nearly had seventy wins, less than thirty losses. He needs to take this, but right. at the end of the day, you had 61 wins, a third, I think 61, 33. Very good record, but 
what TJ did was he reinvented the team. Right. When you re- wait, right. When you scrape and rebuild the team from the ground up and make it good, that's that's when you should get that uh, aw- you know award that. Yeah, no, I did just get kind of be stat in my mind. Uh, Agreed. Yep. Yeah, and then as for playoff MVP, obviously they're all from New Jersey. We've already seen someone use the writing ballot here for Conrad. He's not listed because you cannot bat below 200 and expect to be listed for a playoff MVP. <laughs> we have Reese Carlius, Nelson Ward, David Harris, and Dylan Brammer. All those guys each have a case to be made there. Carlius, obviously, is his uh, bill of work speaks for itself there. Yep. Nelson Ward, we just spent talking him up for about 10 minutes, so mm-hmm. I yeah. think we know why him. Harris, he was the only runs in Game 3. He gets the two-run shot here. And I know people will be saying, well, you just said Conrad only did this. How come Harris gets on that list, but Conrad didn't, even though they did the same practical thing? At least my reasoning here was there was no other runs scored in that game. It was just a straight pitcher's duel outside of that two-run home run. So you can reasonably say Conrad doesn't hit the home run. They still put up five runs, and it's not crazy to think, oh, well, maybe they'll put up more. Plus, the game changes a lot in that way. If you take away the David Harris home run, it's scoreless. And now everything's changed. It's a matter of the Miners just need to put one through, and now they have the series lead. Winning game three was just as big, if not bigger, than winning game four. Because it changes where you are the next day. So, from my logic, I said Harris deserves this more, plus his batting average is higher. He's done more of this series. He kind of slides in and makes sense there. And then Brammer, that performance towards the end there, definitely gave it to him. However, he had a couple other appearances that were very strong as well. Yeah, he did. And, yeah, so for Harris, I agree with that logic. I think that's sound logic of he actually won that game. Like, mm-hmm. took it on himself, hit the home run, won the game. Done. Without him, they probably don't win. Done. Exactly. And see, I know people are going to go, yeah, but if Conrad doesn't hit the home run, they lose. Yes, but no. Yes, but the game's different. Right? Exactly. It's it's not like it's, oh, there's no other runs in the game. There's no way this is going to go. It's, look, there's been five other runs here. It's going to change how Brooks approaches this game a lot, as opposed to if it's scoreless. When a guy's the entire offense, it's all that matters. <laughs> exactly. It comes down to really that being it. Yeah. There was a team offense, and then there was David Harris putting the team on his back. And bringing him in. Agreed. And so that's why he's there. As far as All-Stars go, uh, you can all take a look at that. It's just the players most played games at the position for their team. Yep. As simple as that. Until you get to stars and relievers, at which case then stars were whoever threw the most games started, those top three. And as far as relievers were concerned, it was kind of picking out the best three. But that's also why uh, there's writing slots for every single one of these uh ballots for every one of these awards you can write in a guy if you feel like they deserve it over someone else so that's always an option as far as all-stars go obviously leading vote getter in each category they'll be an all-star and then the three leading vote getters that didn't win the category are also there as well so there is that and so that'll conclude episode 30 both parts one and two you can find us on twitter and in Pod indieballreport.com or that's our website but you can find us on instagram at indieballreport and you can find us on itunes tuning stitcher automatic basically anywhere you can get podcasts 
So with that being said, nothing else left to add, don't forget to play it all.